Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. It is almost 10 minutes after 10 p.m. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for joining us and being with us. Really, really honored uh, to be in your company with you all the way up until 12. Sudan has never seen peace since the ousting of Bashir. Even before that, right, it's kind of what precipitated the ousting of al-Bashir. But more importantly, every year or so, some level of violent outbreak happens in in, in, in Sudan, and it is again the, an accusation uh, that fosters that there are insurgents trying to oust the military rule, and that the military rule is refusing to democratize, it's standing in the way of democracy. What really happens is that the people of Sudan are collateral damage to that. Joining us to give us an account of what's happening on the ground in Sudan is Dua Tariq, a human rights defender and artist. She's literally right now speaking to us from the streets of Khartoum. Dua, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Good evening and welcome to Night Talk. Dua? Dua, are you with us? Seems like we may not have Dua there. We're going to try and reconnect that line. Uh, you can give us a call. If you've been following the story in Sudan, let us know what your thoughts are. The number to dial is 86 Oh, there we go. Dua, do we have you? Yes. Uh, do you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Really do appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, thank you for reaching out and covering. Yeah. Every year, every couple of months or so, we see violent outbreak in the streets of Khartoum across Sudan. Uh, we once again see an indictment yeah. of the military rule that's taking place. What exactly is happening and what precipit- precipitated this round of violent outbreak and military attacks? So right now what's happening is a belated war between the um, Sudan Armed Forces and the paramilitary force, forces. Uh, it broke out today is uh, day five. Um, it's been going since uh, for five days now, continuously with no uh, break. Even though they declared the ceasefire twice for two days, but they uh, neither the neither of the parties committed. So right now uh, I'm in East Khartoum, um, and also I'm a member of um, East Khartoum Neighborhood Committee. And now we started a campaign, um, no war campaign. We're doing spray paint, some theater um, sketches to be posted online. Yeah. And just calling people to resist wherever they are. So we're starting with our neighborhood as an example. We started last night to put out a video of a statement. Yeah. Resistance. Do what has been standing in the way of Sudan going through a democratization process, right? That sort of was the the, the, the promise when the military uh, rule took over after the ousting of Bashir. But it's been close to a decade and still no attempt at fully democratizing. What has been standing in the way of this that? Is- this is exactly what's been standing on the way of that, um, the conflict between the militia and the uh, military, and also the non-clear um, uh, stance from the political parties combined, the forces of freedom and change. So everybody was seeing this, we were expecting it uh, just like the coup last year. And right now, this is, as I, as I mentioned, it's a belated war. Yeah. It, what will bring it about? What do you think would bring about a, an election? Because that's effectively what Sudan needs first and foremost, an election for a legitimate government to be uh, to be placed. Right now on the air, nothing is clear, but of course the aircraft and the fighting and the shooting and the crossfire. Right now there's nothing clear. We're just waiting for, for the ceasefire and we'll be able to, to, uh, to treat the injured and, um, and, and have a clear number of how much casualties we lost. 
um, the city is completely damaged and destroyed now. The uh, health sector is falling apart also. The Minister of Health just stated that the uh, health system is collapsing completely, including the health sector. So right now, we're, we're just waiting for the ceasefire, and then we see how much damage we have to start building, and then we can have yeah. maybe a healthy uh, political uh, negotiation again. Yeah. Charles, I want to bring you into the conversation. Dr. Charles Nukonga uh, is a peace and development expert. Uh, uh, Dr. Nukonga, thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. Perhaps let me start here with you. Is a democratization process at this stage at all possible in Sudan? A democratization process is possible in Sudan, and thank you so much for having me, and thank you as well for your listeners. A democratization process in Sudan is possible um, within the context where in the first place, the peace is achieved and the peace is secured. And once the peace is achieved and it is secured, then you can pass to the process of democratization. However, in the current circumstances, I find that a little bit difficult to achieve because any of the parties that are at war currently, they could swiftly lose their pockets, yeah. lose their troops, and lose their necks. So it's very unlikely that either of them is going to give up until... Um, perhaps one party has completely fallen. Yeah, I ask that because from my vantage point, and I could be wrong, please do correct me if I'm wrong on this, that there doesn't seem to be an incentive for the military rule to give up military control because that would necessarily be the case if Sudan were to democratize. As I stated just now, um, the military or the, the factions that are at war currently are aware of the fact that in the last year and a couple of months or so, they have enjoyed the control of state resources, which will quickly dissipate if you have a civilian rule. They have enjoyed large troop numbers, in which if you have civilian rule, um, some form of demobilization, disintegration of the army, or some restructuring of the security sector reform is going to happen, and they are going to lose their troops and might end up with persons that are not loyal to them. And yeah. thirdly, they are at risk of losing their heads because if some kind of truth and reconciliation is created or some kind of transitional justice mechanism is created, many of them could end up in jail, if not perhaps in a Sharia state like like, yeah. like Sudan, end up being hunged. So three things are at stake. It is their pockets, it is their troops, and it is their necks, and in that order. So yeah. these are the things which are standing on the way to democratization. Yeah. Peace negotiations clearly must then now be done by an external party. Is there a neutral party respected enough by all parties to be able to mediate and be an interlocutor for to bringing about a ceasefire first and foremost and then sustained peace? I am not sure what you mean by an external party, but I think that if we have to look at interventions on the African continent, those that have been led by Africans would see that we have had a positive story in terms of the speediness of the resolution of disputes. And we can think of the most recent crisis in Ethiopia, which was mediated um, by President Olusegun Obasanjo. He still, according to the African Union, has the mandate to cover Sudan because Sudan is part of the Horn of Africa. Yeah. I think the African Union is currently working with IGAT to see how they can work a, an, a mechanism to confirm him or to confirm somebody that is suitable or acceptable to both of the parties. But I see this mediation going in the way of the mediation that happened, for instance, in Burundi, which was pre, which was um, which was mediated by Julius Nyerere 
and when he died he was taken over by Nelson Mandela. A number of similarities are coming to bear here. It was a military faction that was fighting or military wings that were fighting. And on the other hand, you had an attempt to restore some kind of civilian rule. How you deal with that is you manage the politics, civilian politics, and you get a soldier to actually mediate the conflict between the soldiers, set up some parameters, and then you bring some kind of inclusive national dialogue where you have the soldiers and you have the politics. To get to this point where you imagine that the soldiers are going to eventually cede power to civilians is actually hard to foresee. Yeah. On the ground right now, uh, um, Dua, I want to ask you if you can give us an account of what the message is, is ca- that's coming from the military rule and what the insurgent para- paramilitary uh, organizations that are fighting the military rule right now, what are their messages? What are the demands on the ground right now? The demands on the ground right now from the military side is for Hineti to surrender and then um, um, just just quickly do the uh, integrating of the RSF forces to the military forces. And the demands from Hineti side are um, Burhan to be held accountable for all the crimes because Hineti is um, is accusing Burhan of uh, of uh, planning this uh, planning a coup with the Islamist um, Amr al Bashir regime. And then uh, it, they just, it just keeps escalating because neither of the parties want to come to um, a confession that both of them are, are, are part of this uh, conflict. Yeah. We've been hearing a lot of stuff from both sides. Both are not um, legit information. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it, you say it's not legitimate information, but what, what is it that you're hearing? Um, this is what I what I was hearing. I was just telling you is they, if the military wants the military to yeah. surrender and then quickly integrate the power uh, the, his forces into the military forces. And the military forces um, and Shemeti is waiting for Burhan um, is putting pressure on Burhan so uh, to for, so Burhan be held accountable for the crimes of the past uh, massacres like June third massacre, the, the breaking of the city and the military headquarters in, two, in 2019. And also he's accusing uh, Burhan to collaborate with the Islamist Amr yeah. al regime to take over power again. Yeah. Give us a call. The number to dial is 86 I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 Let's take a quick break. Night Talk, Monday to Thursdays, 10 to midnight. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for joining us. Really, really do appreciate it. I'm in conversation with human rights defender and artist uh, speaking to us from the streets of Khartoum right now, Dua Tariq, as well as Dr. Charles Nyukonge, who's a peace and development expert specializing in program design and evaluation. Uh, Dr. Nyukonge, perhaps then want to circle back to uh, Dua's previous answer around some of the demands uh, that are coming from the paramilitary organizations or insurgencies that are fighting at the moment in, 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 in Khartoum. Are those demands attainable and realistic, given that there's, it, it, it really is about fighting for direct access and control over the state? One feels excluded from, from uh, the process of rebuilding the state and, the, and, and, and wants to be included. At, at play, it seems like there is some level of uh, religious sectarianism that's at play over there, but are they at all attainable and are they at all compromisable? Perhaps we should 
bear in mind that these are tensions between two sides that have been mounting since the signing of the accord in December last year, December 2022, about two and a half or three months ago. The so-called framework agreement, which was supposed to pave the way for transition to a civilian-led government in many of its characterizations, um, some people have intimated that um, the agreement by and by nature was uh, extremely weak and entirely unrealistic. And this is because um, somewhere Hamduk, uh, somewhere the, the, the forces loyal to, to Abdel Fattah, they had secured at the very least for themselves some kind of concession which was going to give them some immunity. And this is what um, this is what the forces, the rapid support forces, are fighting against. Yeah. To say, well, you give yourself immunity. What about myself? And what about my men? Um, the, the 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 transition to to civilian rule um, seems very rushed, and the framework is not very clear what role the military is going to play going forward. And I think um, uh, this is where the the devil is really in the details. Yeah. Uh- I mean, you say that the civilian, uh, the transition to civilian rule seems to be rushed. How long would have been a realistic time frame since the ousting of Bashir to uh, to when a reasonable transition to, to civilian rule would have been taking place? How long do you think would have been a sufficient amount of time? Like I mentioned, the 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 the, the, the transition in Sudan was already poisoned by this cocktail of civilian and military rule. Yeah, part of that transition was supposed to not be left in the hands of of Sudanese, it was supposed to have a mediated settlement wherein the settlement between the militaries is done separate from this from this from this from the political conversations. Now mixing both of them and saying the military was going to hand over power, it was tried before, it failed, it have tried they have tried it again and they have failed. Eventually they are going to have external mediators who are going to go back to the drawing board, who are going to mediate the issues between the military, who are going to find a national dialogue and bring the military together with the civilians. And this is something which would have happened in the first place. If that formula had been established from the onset, I think Sudan would not be where it is today. Yeah. So from what from the I guess the temperature, if you're doing a temperature check of of the tension in, in, in Khartoum right now, how long do you think it will take place? How long do you think reasonably would it be enough time from today for us to see an election take place in Sudan? I think if we have to start thinking about election as a starting point, we are missing it. The first thing which we have to plead to have is some kind of a ceasefire in which the military is told to go back to the barracks and the the, the heads of both uh, the paramilitary and the National Defense Force sit together and find a framework in which they can work together. Once that is established, then you need to very quickly, as um, the colleague was saying on the line um, shortly, you need to very quickly attend to the humanitarian needs of the country. And as soon as that is also established, then you need to start a process of national mm. dialogue. Yeah. wherein you get the country to reflect on what went wrong and address those things. Elections should come at the bottom end. For me, elections, you should be looking at elections in the next two or three years. Right. And and, and so then the starting point would be ceasefire. Yet today a ceasefire came to a failure. Um, what would be the difference in the next negotiated ceasefire? Would a African Union uh, type of... 
peacekeeping mission to Sudan and Khartoum in particular be one that will bring about a successful ceasefire? Ceasefire is going to happen. Just not sure when it's going to happen. Very soon they're going to run out of military supplies. And once they run out of military supplies and they're fatigued, efforts on the ground to dissuade people from joining the military because the military is being fed by civilians who are supporting either side as well joining the military. Once those efforts coalesce into something strong, the ceasefire is going to force itself into the situation. And I think that's when Africa is going to get yeah. intermediate. Charles, how, how much certainty is there that you'll see fatigue setting and that they'll run out of military supplies? I am certain that they will run out of military supplies because at the end of the day, someone is going to have more control of the of the resources and another is going to really find different hideouts and which will create a pathway for one person to secure the airport. And from that point, that person will declare that they have won the war and the African Union or the different mediating bodies are going to step in. As we speak right now, IGAT is presently on the ground. So IGAT yeah. is the first port of call can actually initiate the dialogue process. The African Union can follow to support the IGAD, the IGAD efforts. Fortunately, it is not everybody that left Khartoum. People are in their houses. It's a military that is busy fighting outside. But the unfortunate thing is that civilians are the casualty. Yeah. Give us a call. 86 I'd love to hear your comments and your reflections on this conversation. I'm also taking your voice notes on 614 104107. That's 0614104107. Um, it, it, it really is a travesty what's going on in Sudan. Perhaps just a last uh, point, and, and, and it's, it's quite unfortunate that this is perhaps the footnote of the conversation, but it's an important point nonetheless and something that your paper had significantly focused on. In the last uprising in Sudan a couple of years ago, it was really young women that were at the forefront of it, Charles, that brought about um, uh, mass mobilization to be able to hold to account the military rule um, and force it to start initiating democratization process uh, to continue uh, the process of uh, transitioning into civilian rule. And women in Sudan seem to be doing that once again, be defending households, communities, and forcing for conversation to take place. It's a significant role. It's understated oftentimes in the media. Perhaps can you give us just a, 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 a I guess, your from your view and from your research, an overview of what you think the key features there are? The role of women in leadership is not just understated in the case of Sudan, but it's understated in Africa. When Tanzania lost its, its former president, it was thought and believed amongst many people that the current, the current president was too quiet and perhaps would struggle to govern a country like that. But she's held the country together. She's put the country in a path of development. She's engaged new partnerships and the country has picked up and is even doing better than it was under the, under the, previous, the previous leadership of Mangufuli. It, the same thing, for instance, in Sudan, the role that the women have played in, in achieving the peace which Sudan has post-Bashir, the women still have a significant role in securing that peace. It's unfortunate that when they go around the, the negotiations table, you, have, you still have too few women there. But even the few women who are there, many of them have remained very vocal, and I think that this transition is largely going to succeed if you have a female leader, because yeah. she would be a reconciler, she would bring people together, and she's really going to 
bring this family to say, let us have a conversation. That's and I think that Sudan should be looking at that part. Does the politics of Sharia rule make it possible for women to rise to the top? I mean, it's happened in Sudan where women have been included around the negotiating table of transitioning towards civilian rule, and it's taking place at the moment, right? May not be in great numbers, but it's happening. But just as a as a as a as a you know as a paradigm of politics, does Sharia rule make room for that to happen en masse? You need to understand as well that the dynamics between Sudan and Tanzania are not very different. Tanzania also has Sharia rule. Tanzania is largely is largely an Islamic state or largely a Muslim Muslim dominated. If you have examples of Tanzania, I think Sudan can inspire itself itself from that. And this has actually grown because previously in Sudan the, the place of women was relegated to the kitchen, was relegated to the household. But we've seen an incredible amount of women who have gotten into business, of course, facilitated by some legislations which were created by Bashir. But yeah. post-Bashir, you've seen women raise their voice in politics, women raise their hands, women taking part in cabinet. I don't think that a woman who has been, for instance, foreign minister should not also be considered to be a transition leader. Yeah. And just the final theme I want us to explore here, perhaps, is uh, the, I guess, the specter of Bashir's legacy, um, you know, being hanging over the head of uh, Sudan's transition or at least an attempt at a transition. Is it at all, you know, plausible that part of the instability and political instability that you that we're witnessing in Sudan at the moment is in part because of a clash between what was B- Bashir's sympathizers and empathizers and supporters, uh, let's call it his, his, his sycophantic uh, participants, uh, trying to themselves once again tussle for the heart of the state at the moment, whether through the military rule or the, paramilitary rule. I think one of the things which many African states have engaged in, especially those that have tested power dictatorially, have engaged in, is to create counter military forces which they have termed or given different names to and some of these are special forces largely uh, sudan is not the only one this paramilitary uh, this paramilitary um, organ that we are talking about was created some as some kind of special force which would intervene where the military does not have the requisite expertise but the president would create this for instance and you can w- look around africa you would see that there are a number of them in different in different African countries, many of them are collapsing because you still you have these these sort of these sort of clashes. So it's one thing which Bashir created, which was supposed to to somewhere protect him if one side of the of the military was was against him. And this is now the consequences are being felt after Bashir after Bashir has left. But I think by and large, um, what this is showing is that the conversations which happened before with only the Sudanese armed force, those conversations can no longer continue because now Hamditi is a prominent voice and they can no longer be ignored in their conversations to the stabilization of of Sudan. Dr. Charles Nyukonga, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really, really do appreciate your insights uh, and thank you so much for your availability. Thank you so much. Give us a call. What are your thoughts on this? 86 I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Uh, if you want to send us a WhatsApp voice note over there, I'm taking your calls on 86 Tweet me. It is at Oliver underscore speaking. That's on Twitter. Oliver Dixon on Facebook. And you and I can engage on those platforms as well. 
yeah, my heart bleeds for uh, the people of Sudan and Khartoum at this moment. It it honestly is an untenable situation that they've been subjected to for the better part of the last decade. Uh, and, and, and I do think that we need an immediate ceasefire uh, and peace processes uh, emanating thereof. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to continue the show on the other side of this.